Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Fell Pony Podcast. My name's Tom Lloyd, and it's really lovely to have you here again. On today's show, we're going a little bit off-piste to talk about not just fell ponies, but also some of the other less well-known native breeds that my guest has spent the last couple of years photographing in their native habitat. So I would like to introduce Ruth Chamberlain, who many of you will know through her Instagram account, Ruth on the Hoof. Hey Ruth, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Uh, now before we start, you've got to please excuse, I've had a hacking cough all week, um, so my voice is a bit croaky, and I understand you've been self-isolating with Covid the last week or so. I have, yes, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm okay though. <laughs> have you made use of the time out? Yeah, I've caught up on a lot of things, a bit of picture processing, but still there's not enough time in the world to get through my archive, I don't think. <laughs> I know, and the days are short at the minute as well. So, Ruth, can you describe to me your setup, where you are, and do you have any ponies at home? Yeah, so, well, I'm based in Cumbria, like we, quite a lot of people are, I suppose. Um, and I live in Penrith, uh, in my own little house here. I don't have any animals at home, um, but I'm quite lucky that I've got my mum and dad have got fields and my, well, my mum's ponies, really, but I, I do ride them and go and see them and everything. Um, yeah, so I just, I'm based in Penrith and um, from there I disperse all over the place. <laughs> what are the ponies you've got at your mum's? Uh, we've got two Highland ponies and a little donkey. Ah, oh, donkeys. I love I love your donkey. Yeah, I love them too. I don't know a lot about Highlands other than when I've been to the um, Felon Highland camp at Linnell actually, so I'm, I'm getting starting to get my head around them yeah. a little bit. Yeah, oh they're great. So look, let's, let's go back to the beginning Ruth. Where did this fascination with native ponies come from? We've always had native ponies. Um, I had a little Welsh Mountain Cross um, that I kind of learnt to ride on. Um, my aunts always had fell ponies and my mum had horses but moved on to Highlands. Um, again, just by chance really, she kind of got into natives. So we've always kind of had natives and just well, throughout the years going to horse shows, obviously seeing the fell ponies and the free roaming ones in the lakes and things, I just, I like to know about them and I've always been a horsey kind of girl growing up. I like to incorporate horses of any kind into anything. So even when I go on holiday, I like to go and see horses or go riding. I went to America a couple of years ago to my friend's ranch, um, and that was great. I just got to basically be a cowboy for a while. <laughs> so I was in Montana. Um, it's not actually too dissimilar to sort of the, the common land we have here, you know, sort of very open, quite treeless. Um, but yeah, they've got a big herd of horses and it's known as a dude ranch, which where you have guests can pay to go and stay and ride the horses on trails, look after them. And they teach like Pirelli horsemanship there. Um, so I took my camera on my sort of trip of the of the States, really, and I went along for a while. And you no, know, I just had a great time. I learned so much because um, they do the sort of the Pirelli natural horsemanship. Um, you learn quite a lot about like herd behavior, structure, how to talk to horses and things. And I went there being a bit of a sceptic about it, but when I see it in action, how it should properly be done, it makes total sense. And I find it very useful when I observe other, other horses everywhere else. Oh, that's really interesting. So uh, so the the Pirelli way of being how you are with a horse, that, that relates totally to how you, how you are when you're amongst a herd of ponies, native ponies. Here. Yeah, well, I just, it's sort of, the Pirelli way, it's not like being namby-pamby about your horse. It's learning how horses communicate with each other 
and learning how you can use your body language to sort of communicate back to them or at least understand that horse is not happy with me or that horse is happy with me. Um, which I think when you're going through a, a herd of ponies on a common or something, it's very useful to be able to sort of read and understand because, you know, half a ton of, of pony coming towards you is one thing. But, you know, when you've got 10 of them, it's quite another. Obviously, I do the same in, in Muck's mind. You get to read them quite well, um, you know, the ears mm. and just how they're standing. And is that the sort of things you're looking at with the Pirelli stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously I didn't learn that much officially, but I just picked up quite a bit when I was there. But yeah, like you say, like the ears, how they how they behave with one another and how in particular things like the lead mare will communicate with the herd. Like she does things like she, the horses move out of her way. She doesn't move out of their way, that sort of thing. And I think it's actually more translatable when you go to a herd that you don't know particularly well. You can kind of pick out which one's in charge, really. And I think that's important to do because obviously if you get the sort of ones at the bottom of the pecking order, they're the ones that tend to get bullied. And if suddenly the lead mare does decide she wants to come over and have a look, she will chase those ones out the way and you could get run over because they're just trying to get out of her way. Whereas I think if you're aware of that, you can obviously put yourself in a position where you're not going to get squashed. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get that. Totally. I can see that. So at what point did you first encounter uh, fell ponies? Was it and was there something different about them that appealed to you? Um, again, well, I've grown up in Cumbria near Colbeck Common, so I'd see, again, ponies all the time up there. Um, and my aunt and my cousins have always had fell ponies, so I've always I've always known about fell ponies. Um, I don't remember ever not knowing what they were. <laughs> um, but yeah, my aunt, I think my aunt probably, she's a really keen um, fell pony enthusiast, so I think we'd, we'd go to like, the shows and see lots of fell ponies there, and we'd just come along, and then eventually we got our Highland um which we got more because we were sort of introduced to mountain and moorland breeds and Highland just have we just happened to come across one who turned out to be the right one for us um but yeah fell ponies just used to go whenever we used to go out to Mosedale swimming we could see them on the common there and obviously all like places like going down past T-Bay you'd see them up going down the motorway you'd see them and yeah just just see them around like I've always known them and I'm not too far from the Waverhead stud either so I'd always see them up there so at some point um, in all of this, you, you start to pick up a camera mm-hmm. um, and I gather you've just kind of picked the camera up and worked it all out for yourself, haven't you? Because, I mean, if ever, anybody hasn't seen your photos, they're stunning, some really, really stunning po- photos of ponies. And, you know, I know how hard it can be to, to do that, but you, you're capturing some amazing stuff. So so where, how has all this started, getting into taking pictures? Yeah, well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it was kind of got into it through horses really it was um we used to go to shows with mum and you know sometimes it can be a bit like watching paint dry um and we'd sit there and, and our ponies were never you know they were never showstoppers we were never going to win anything and um we'd go to like look at the pictures afterwards and they'd never never really focused on our ponies so there'd be a, a, a few pictures of them but they weren't looking particularly good or anything so i think my dad had a little digital camera and he used to just sort of lend it to me and say why don't you try and get some good ones of your mum Um, And that's kind of where it became. I used to take a few pictures of her when she was a tiny dot in the screen. And then I kind of worked on that to get when she was coming past and to try and get when she's on the correct diagonal and all that sort of thing. Um, And that's where it kind of really, I started getting into it. And then I have my dogs and everything I love to take pictures of. Just got really into cameras. And um, it turns out I I sort of knew it, but my, my grandfather was really into photography. And when he passed away, I got given one of his old Leica film cameras, which it just kind of made me even more interested in it because I realised how much he loved doing it. So I thought, oh, this is something good that we can kind of share. And I don't really do film stuff, but I, I, like, I like to have that connection with him. Yeah, and then so from there, I just would keep practising. Um, I'd see pictures that I really wanted to try and get myself. You can, ask, you can always ask people, and a lot of people are very helpful on, on things, especially with the internet and social media. But sometimes you just need to work it out for yourself. 
and it's very handy actually spending the day with someone who knows what they're doing as well so even like just in the last year or so I've met a few really really good photographers and I've just spent the day with them and just from seeing how they achieve something it's really changed my kind of perspective and made me try it really challenge myself to new things just getting out there and trying different things and then oh that looks right that's what I want to get okay I'm gonna try this next time then and and then yeah I, I think I've joined I've been in a couple of camera clubs occasionally um, and it's really good the camera brand I use they have like a weekly meeting as well just like a zoom meeting it's really handy that and you can sort of chat away and everyone's got different things they like to do so yeah it's all good you can all kind of compare compare notes so to speak <laughs> I, I think it's really nice as well that you've gone through the whole process with the Leica because presumably you've you know you've you developed your own negatives and and done a bit of that to understand the process which yeah I again really like I've, I'm not I really wish I had more time to do it because I'd like to learn the craft better um but so I have I have the equipment I just haven't haven't got the time so to speak and it is a skill of its own <laughs> to try and learn to do but yeah I, I do have it and I think I, I do like my digital stuff purely because it's instant it's there and I can just very quickly take a few pictures oh that's working or oh, that's not working I think I'd be more confident doing film stuff now because I know how to take a good picture I don't have to wait if that makes sense if I take it I'm like well it's going to look probably okay <laughs> when it comes out um, but yeah, no, I, I do try and stick with digital, but it's nice to have the option of film cameras. So at some point you've been learning how to use the cameras and you're getting some great shots and you've decided to start a project which is documenting um, herds of native ponies. How has that sort of come about? Where, At what point did you sort of start making it more of a thing rather than just taking ponies at shows? Well, it was a, a couple of reasons, really. Um, like when I was at university, I loved, um, I did zoo archaeology, so I studied a lot about you know animals and their relationship with humans through history. And the horse is obviously incredibly important, but I never, it never really came up that much. It was, it kind of annoyed me how little it did come up. And I did obviously, I was into photography back then, and whenever I'd put a horsey picture up, no one was really interested in it, and I thought, this is quite sad. Um, but what really kind of, I kept thinking, oh, I should, there's like lots of breeds all over the country. It'd be quite nice to take a few pictures of them so people can see what they are. Um, but really it was actually during the first lockdown. Again, I'd go out walking on my like, cause I, I, I live on the fell at the bottom of the fell. Um, and there'd be ponies on there. So I'd just take the dogs for a walk and see some fell ponies. I'd take a few snaps and I'd share them onto, there's like a Lake District group on Facebook. And it was amazing how many people just hadn't heard of fell ponies or didn't know what they were. But these are the same people that know exactly what a Herdwick sheep is or, you know, a Belter Galloway, a Highland cow, all that sort of thing. And you're like, well, how do you not know what fell ponies are? And they were just like, oh, what's these wild ponies? And you're like, well, they're not, they're not wild ponies. <laughs> um, so I started posting pictures and information about those. Um, and that's how it just, it sort of really started with that, I suppose. And then I started putting it onto my Instagram and eventually I had a few pictures of other breeds that I was trying to that, it's, that it kind of all started really before lockdown but lockdown really sort of cemented the whole explaining about their history um and you know their, their relationship with the environment and just what they are and why they're important um and through that it just it kind of really took off I suppose um and I sort of translated it more to my Instagram again where I started posting more pictures about specific breeds um because I realized people like the information about it they don't like to see just a picture they, they obviously like the picture but when you put in the detail in the caption about, well, this is a fell pony, it's from Cumbria, and then this is about its history, um, then you get more into researching the history because people start asking me questions like, oh, well, what did they used to do? Or what's this? What's that? And so I think it's it was really important to start learning more about them in depth, which is where I've come to meet all these people. 
um, to learn about them. And it's the same for each breed I've posted as well. So that's now partway towards a book, um, The Hidden Hoofbeats of Britain and Ireland. Yeah. Um, again, going back to what I said about the, the zoo archaeology and how I was a bit annoyed that no one had really heard about horses or no one really talks about them. I thought the hidden hoofbeat, it sort of sounds a bit like heartbeat because they were so important to, like, if we didn't have horses, like, we just wouldn't have what we have like society like we have it today. The industry of Britain was built on the back of a horse, but yet they're so, even like in, in all of history, you get any books and stuff, they always talk about the cattle, the sheep, the pigs, you know, what people ate, what they consumed, how people survived. Um, I think I was reading a droving book and a lot of drovers did use, like, they walked on foot. Um, but there's one where they come down over the border into Carlisle and the whole book talks about their journey and they talk about the dogs that round up the cows and they talk about all the people they go with. They don't talk about what they're riding and the only evidence as horses is like when they go over the border they have to sort of, um, uh, what's the word, announce they're there so they have to put them on paperwork and there's like four horses on the paperwork and that's all there is. I try to, yeah basically sort of show people that you know they have this cultural history with us and that people are so unaware of the cultural importance of these ponies and horses across the UK and Ireland you know it's just they've been such a big part of our lives and um, there's a famous saying I can't remember the name of the I have to get the quote for the name of the guy who said it but on Eriski the island it's a three mile long island it was completely isolated by sea um, a causeway was built in 2001 and the Eriski pony obviously lived on this three mile island and there's a it was a a local vicar, I think it was, and he said, without the people of Eriski, there would be no pony, but without the pony of Eriski, there'd be no people, something to that effect. I'll get the exact quote for you. But basically, he was saying that, you know, the ponies couldn't survive without the people, but the people couldn't survive without the ponies. And I think it's really important to remember that because it's the same for any breed, the fell pony, the, the Exmoor pony, the Dartmoor, the Welsh, you know, all of them have had such an important part of our life. Um, and we just kind of, it's kind of forgotten really to the, mo the modern day people. People know sheep are important, they know cows are important, but they don't know how important horses were. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's really good. So we're talking about the Eriske, so let's get on to it then. So far, if I'm right, you've visited um, Eriske, which is on the far west coast of Scotland. I had a, I had a little Google actually earlier. It's, it's a tiny yeah. little island. It's the Outer Hebrides, and it's a tiny little yeah, it's blob. Yeah, tiny, <laughs> tiny. Um, uh, so we'll, yeah. we'll talk, talk more in detail about Eriske. You've also done the Highland and visited um, the ponies at Balmoral and being out with the deer stalkers. And um, the little, I, I never say this right, is it Carnedu, Carnedau? How do you sell the, the, the little Welsh pony? Carnedai. It depends, yeah, what part of Wales, but in, in well, Carnedai, it's a th yeah, sound. Yeah, which is... Which is, I know, but it's spelt like Carnadu. <laughs> so I know when I was growing up, and I've mentioned this before, you know, they talked about there'd just been nine breeds of um, native British pony, and I think now we're up to fourteen. And and this little Welsh pony is one of these what we're regarding to be a new one, isn't it? And it's so it's it is related to the, if I'm right, the Welsh section A, but actually is quite distinct and recognised as its own breed. Yeah, well, I'll start off with the sort of nine native breeds thing. Um, and that kind of all stems from, you know, the 1950s and Pony Club or origins and things where they had the nine native breeds, which was, you know, your Dartmoor, Exmoor, New Forest, the Welsh Mountain, the Welsh, well, A, B and C, A, B, C and D, um, Felldales, um, Highland, Shetland and the Connemara. The Connemara is not a British breed for a starter. That always kind of irks me a bit. It's Irish. <laughs> it's not it's not a British breed. But they don't include things like the Eriski pony. And the Eriski pony is probably one of the purest breeds we have, 
because of its isolation by sea. But the simple reason is there was a book, um, is it the Observer's Book of Horses and Horse and Pony Breeds? And that only includes the, the ones that I've mentioned. And that's because in the 1950s, no one had heard of the Eriski pony because it was isolated by sea. And it's only really in the 1960s it started to be heard of on the mainland. But that's when they started getting more mechanisation over in the Outer Hebrides. There's a better ferry across to the island. And the ponies actually started to die out and they nearly went extinct in the 70s. And there's this um, a, a group, a local community, and they got together to save the breed. But basically no one had heard of them on the mainland. So of course they weren't included in all these books, all this pony club stuff. They just weren't a thing. And even today, the Eriski is still not always regarded as a, a breed in its own right. People think it's just some poor quality highland or something, which is, is that, it's ridiculous, really. Um, but I, I remember the, it's not recognised by the, um, the NPS, National Pony Society. And their reasoning is because it didn't form part of the foundation of the British riding pony. Uh, take off you that what you will. But the Eriski is its own breed. Um, and these Carnathai ponies, they are es essentially... The Welsh pony, before anything like Arab or any, any other breeds were added to it, they're completely isolated in North Wales and the Snowdonia Mountains or the Carnathai Mountains. Um, yeah, they, don't, they didn't have anything added to them. So they are what the Welsh pony would be if we didn't have Arab added to them. So they don't have that dished face. They don't have, they've got a lovely little trot, but it's not like the flashy Araby type trot that the Welsh A has. Um, and they've been proven genetically distinct. They are their own breed um, and they are recognised as their own breed, but they're not bred in captivity as such by breeders they're just sort of bred on the mountain and probably our most naturally breeding population is the stallions just run with the mares they just have foals and they gather them once a year take the colts some of the colts off and they let some of the colts stay on to go on to be stallions um, but there's no like stud book or anything which is again why they're not necessarily recognized by some organizations because they don't fall into your traditional definition of a breed the eriski ponies on the island um, are owned by local crofters and the society on the island is quite unusual because there are two Eriski pony um, societies. The one on the island is the original one, but it's not it's not a society as we sort of recognise on the mainland. It is, it is, but they also they have a much more that like, all the ponies are kind of looked after by the society. Like the owners are all there, the crofters will like look after their own ponies. But for instance, when they're put up on they're put up on the hill during the summer, and they can't get down to the villages. Um, but generally, people from the society will go and check on them. And they'll make sure they're okay and they'll report back if there's any looking like they might need a worm or they might need a hoof trim and things like that. So it's kind of a community really to look after the ponies. But it's it's very similar to commoners grazing. They get put up um so yeah, so the summertime they get put up on the hill on Benscree and on Eriski. And then on the first of October they're brought down and they stay the whole winter in the town. And it's kind of the opposite to how naturally a horse should feed, because a horse naturally should, you know, feast in the summer, famish in the winter. But for the Eriski ponies, it's slightly different. It's kind of famish in the summer, really, and then a feast in the winter because they're down at the houses. They're getting all the scraps of food out the windows and everything. They're getting all the good feeding down there. But yeah, I think most places, like the commons grazing is why a lot of these ponies are considered, well, semi-feral, semi-wild, whatever. Um, and even the Carnethi, um, they are technically owned by like local farmers. The, the guardians have got like a sort of section of land and the ponies that are in that, they kind of own. Um I haven't been able to go and talk to people directly there, so that's my that's my understanding as best as I have it at the moment. But they are technically owned, um, and they actually have special permission to not have microchips and things on the, and passports when they're on the mountain. But as soon as they come off the mountain, and if they're staying off the mountain, they have to be microchipped and passported. So it's it's little things like that. I think it's the same for Exmoor. I think some of the Exmoor ponies are allowed to get away with that because they're not technically brought off the hill. <laughs>
the Carnathai, there's um, this big, massive area, a big mountain, and there's certain, I can't remember how many stallions are out there, uh, but they're very, like little family bands, and they will gather the foals in, or they gather them all, all in each year, or as many as they can get, they give them a little health check, and then they take off basically any ill-looking ones, any stallions that are maybe throwing something genetically that they shouldn't be, like, you know, there might be a locking patella or something, they want to just take that off the mountain. But they pick colts to send back up, and I know one of the. I was watching one of the the talks they were giving. And they're saying they don't pick it based on looks. They pick the they pick the colts that are, that they just know will survive up there, and you know it's that's something that generations of these farming families can just see because they've they've lived and breathed these ponies. They know which ones are going to make it to be the strong stallions up there, and they're not always the prettiest, best put together ones. Like a lot of like breeders would try and pick. They're they're breeding them for you know hardy survivability really up on the mountain. But yeah, they they're pretty much natural. They, that's the only selective breeding they get is they get the colts. Some colts are taken off the hill, but the rest are put up there to like basically to live and die. Um, and obviously, if there is an ill one and it's picked up, they'll go. They will go and like a, a local rescue does take them in. Um, but you know, it's such a massive area they can't always go and get them so they do some of them actually do die up on the hill which is quite unusual because the bodies actually get to be returned to the earth which is a lot of problems with our sort of soils in Britain are we don't get that sort of recycling of nutrients back into the soil but it does happen in the Carnathai mountains when the, especially the stallions that live right up at the top you know those family bands that are in such inaccessible places like even today they don't even get to gather them all because they just can't get to them because they're so so far away and that's part of their their legend is that they because when um, Henry VIII had his he ordered his culls, it's 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 not quite how it worked. But the sort of legend is Henry VIII ordered anything that couldn't carry a knight in armour to be to be killed, because um, it wasn't worth it. I mean, it's not that's not the actual what happened. But um, the Carnathai ponies were so wily and incredible they managed to escape to the mountains away from his you know weapon wielding cronies, <laughs> um, because but the places they do get to you just wouldn't be able to reach with a standard like anything really. Um, and even if you look at the confirmation of the Carnathai, I think it's fascinating because they haven't had human breeding selecting it. The confirmation, just bear with me when I say it, but they kind of have a confirmation of a goat. Um, they've got quite a steep croup on them. Their shoulders quite, when you just look at them, but when you see the terrain they have to jump up, the steep hindquarters means they can actually leap pretty vertically up things. Um, and they don't, they're not carrying, like the way they carry their weight and stuff is completely different to a sort of domestic pony and everything. But when you see what they're trying to scramble up, it makes sense and it's, that's why it works. And the Aeroski ponies, they, they're quite similar. Again, they're not necessarily bred for looks and, you know, things like that. They're bred, you know, to survive and what's their temperament like and can, yeah, can they survive on this hill? And they're, they're not too dissimilar. They kind of built a similar sort of way. And that, yeah, they, they sort of scramble around on this rocky hill as well. It's fascinating. I, I didn't know any of that at all. It sounds amazing. I'm going to have to go and start visiting. And it's really interesting because it's, it's kind of how my dad bred our ponies. So he was the first thing he was looking for was the first question he was asking was, will it survive out on the fells with minimal help? Um, will it breed? Because obviously, you know, it has to be um, making some money. And then what's the temperament like? Can you work with it? And then after that, start looking at um, its pedigree and its confirmation. Well, that's, that's what it's like. Well, the likes of Eriski, though, you've got very little choice of, because you can't pick other animals from, they, they could get a pony across on the ferry from from like South Uist. Um, but again, it was, you're quite limited by what you had on the island. So you had to, you, can't, you couldn't be picky about looks. <laughs> so to speak but they do have some lovely lovely Eriski ponies that I think look very lovely 
So here we go, we get into the bit of the show that everybody's been waiting for. Um, this is the part of the show where I ask our guests to call the herd home. So um, we're in the thick of winter now, I'm feeding hard now. So I'm going to call my ponies as if I'm calling them down for hay. And then I'd like you to call which, whichever breed of pony you'd like uh, to call it down, as if you're bringing it down for photo. So you might need to step back a little bit. Okay, so I'll go first. Come on! Come on! Home! Okay, Ruth. If you like what you're hearing, why not come and join the herd at Patreon and help us continue to provide great content for free. As well as podcasts, we've already uploaded over an hour of Felpony films to our Felpony Adventures YouTube channel. So come and join the herd at patreon.com slash felpony. So let's let's stick with the Ariscape ponies a little bit. Um, can, can we just go a little bit deeper? So they're categorised as critical by Rare Breed Survival Trust. Oh, it's priority now, isn't it? They've changed that. Can you describe the landscape? Because I think I think you've actually described it somewhere. I've seen you describing it as the edge of the world. <laughs> it is. There's a, there's a part of it when you look out and there's just open sea. I think you can see Barrett in the distance, but you are literally, you've got the full force of the ocean, the wind and rain and weather and everything just coming at you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a basically, it's a three mile long island. It's quite rectangular shaped really. When you, it's, it's a weird shape, but it's, it kind of looks quite rectangular. Um, and when you first cross the causeway, it's relatively flat. That's where a lot of the houses are. Um, and you follow, there's a little main road down to the sort of ferry to take you across to Barra. But there's this big old hill in the middle of it called Ben Screen. And it's not massively tall or anything, but it is just a big hill. And um, traditionally, they used to obviously strip the peat off it to burn in their little houses. Um, so when you go out on the hill, there's a, it's a really weird way of walking across. You can see... I'll, I'll rewind a little bit because I remember the, I used to observe Eriski ponies are so cautious when they walk that a lot of them actually sniff the ground. It was it was strange because I know some in Cumbria and they were doing the same thing as these ones on Eriski. And I was like, why? Are they, this, I don't see this. This is weird. And it's just like a little, they literally just a little nose to the ground and then they'd be very carefully going in. And when they walk into something really boggy, obviously all native breeds are very good at handling mud and stuff. But the Ariski ponies, they'll walk into it. They don't panic. They very quietly do it. They'll nibble at whatever they're doing. But they reverse out. They don't try and turn. They always reverse. Um, and it's, it's, it's strange. And they'll always, they will try and avoid muddy areas. And I know a lot of people who have Ariski have said that to me, that they always try and go round bogs instead of going through it. Because I know like a lot of other breeds, like the Exmoor, will just plough through anything. Um, but I remember walking out my first day on Ben Screen and I found out exactly why they're so careful. Because you're looking at the ground and it looks perfectly fine. And then you walk, 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 and then you just fall into a bog. <laughs> and literally, it's the ground looks really hard. And I remember just even this year, I was going across it. I was like, this is why they, they're like this. They have to be so careful because this ground, you cannot tell where you're going to fall and where you're not. But the next minute, you're just walking out across open rock. And again, the Eriski doesn't, doesn't break stride. It won't try and go around the rock. It'll just go straight over it. And I think a lot of other ponies will try and go round rock, but on Eriski, by the time you've got around this long piece of rock, you may as well be on the other side of the island at that point. So they just go straight over it. It just doesn't, it just doesn't phase them. Um, but yeah, I think it's just this big hill and it's lots of bits of stripped peat, um, sinking boggy bits, hard tussocky grassy areas, uh, lots of nooks and crannies, and then bits of heather, but then straight away you're down at the sea. You know, you're on, you're on the seashore. And I think that's, again, they've got sand and water, seaweed and all that sort of stuff. And they're eating that. They're loving the sort of salty rocks and everything. 
Um, so they've got such a varied terrain where they are, and it's all within like a tiny little condensed island. It's so strange. And they've got. Um, I read. I read somewhere they have a very dense coat that's shorter than most other native breeds, and and possibly that's an adaptation for living by the sea. Yeah, that was that was just one of my observations that I've made just from visiting all these ponies. Um, like I tend to find fell ponies in particular have quite a long coat. Winter with winter coats. We're talking here. Yeah. 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 Winter coats. Yeah. And I don't. I don't tend to see the longer coat on other breeds that I do in a fell pony, for instance. But I think when you're up on the top of a fell, the wind and rain we have is very different to what they get when they're exposed to the sea on Eriski. And I think the Eriski, all Eriskis I've known, their winter coats have been actually quite short, but when you touch them, they're so dense. And obviously shorter hair will dry quicker in a wind. And when you've, when you've got like literally the Atlantic seaboard there, just blowing constantly on you, and it's like the wind is harsh. Like one, I was on the top of Ben's screen one day and I could hardly stand up, though it's so strong, the wind. And I think the denser coat holds, traps the air better. This is just my theory, but I think the, the, denser, the denser coat traps the air better so it doesn't get blown out as much. Um, obviously the fell ponies are used to that as well. Um, but I think the fell ponies, I, I think their, their longer coat is just, I think it's a better adaptation for the Lake District because it's not quite so exposed, it is exposed, but not in the same way that it is on Eriski. Is there any other, other sort of observations you, you can point to between, you know, specifically between the different breeds, the different native breeds, you know, that you know, Eriske ponies do this and fell ponies do that. Yeah, one thing, I mean, they're all, they all have very similar um, behaviours that they can do, but little things like their hoof shape seem slightly different. And actually my friend in Montana's noticed the same thing because she's got a Highland pony as well. Um, but I find that the Scottish breeds tend to have quite pointy triangular feet, especially like the Eriske and even the Carnethi. And I think that's probably a way their feet wear when they're on the rocky terrain. But the X, I look after a little herd of Exmoors that literally they've never had their feet trimmed in 11 years and they've got perfectly round feet and I find that so it literally looks like someone's very beautifully rasped all their feet but no one has uh, but they are on a flat surface but I think it's interesting to see how their feet are all differently shaped and the Carnathai and the Eriski pony have got very pointy little toes for gripping in all these rocky bits of nooks and crannies and things but apart from that I do they do all have very similar um, behaviours as such I think the way they move is different and that's again depends on their environment like you know the fell and the dales tend to lift their feet quite high obviously the dales pony had a lot of that done for like trotting races and things but the action is obviously quite high anyway and I think if you ever go walking in the lake district over the some of the tracks with the big rocks in the way you can see why they need to lift their legs up and like the highland has got a very straight um, movement very workmanlike and it's it's basically the highland is expending less energy when it trots because it's not lifting its legs up and they do lift their legs up because when they work in the heather they have to really lift their legs and I had quite an interesting discussion with a lot of highland pony people about this because I was like you don't always need a straight movement with them but on the ground they're, they're all about minimizing energy expenditure because in the highlands the ground is so poor generally up there they were having like, problems with like trying to feed their ponies and stuff so they want them to expend as little energy as possible and having a straight very like low energy action will help with that but when you've got a, when you're working a fell pony you're often on tracks and stuff that are very rocky and you need to have them lifting their feet up naturally um, and obviously when their action's natural they're, they're not using as much energy anyway so I think that's there's different things like you know where they're born where they live that, that sort of says a lot about how they move and like I said before about the Carnathai the way they sort of scramble up rock faces 
it's so different to any other pony I've ever seen move. And um, I know someone who's gonna, she wants to tra train her to like drive in scurries and things because she thinks they're gonna be so sharp and moving so quickly at, at being able to pull something just because of the way they're built, because of their environment. So look, we, we'd mentioned Highlands there. Let's go a bit more, let's talk a bit more about Highlands. So you've, you've been away, spent a few days working with uh, Gillies, I think they're called, aren't they? Yes, um, that's right. Who are the, um, uh, hang on, is, is Gillies the ponies or the handlers? The handlers. The handlers. Oh. So this specifically, we're talking about um, pack ponies for deer stalking here, aren't we? Yeah, well, the deer ponies, yeah. Um, they're often, it's quite an interesting debate as well, is uh, they're called garrons, but not everyone calls them garrons. And I've been having quite some interesting discussions because it seems that everybody who works them outside of the sort of highlands, particularly the area up around Inverness, they don't call them garrons, they just call them, you know, ponies. And um, the Gaelic, in Gaelic, the word for gelding is garron. And I think, because I know when I was on Eriski, they said, oh yeah, the garrons. And I was like, wait, hang on, what? <laughs> and that's what they call geldings. Um, but a lot of, I've spoken to a lot of gillies and they're like, no, no, we call them garrons. But then some people are like, I've never called them a garron in my life. And these are Highlanders. And I'm like, how can this be so inconsistent? Um, so that's, that was really interesting. And my theory is that the Highlanders, because the, actually their ponies are really popular, so they'd sell them a lot. But they'd obviously, if they were selling a gelding, they'd call it a garron. So they were selling their garrons, but they're also working ponies. I think it kind of just got picked up outside the Highlands or outside the Gaelic language that, oh, a garron is a deer pony. Um, so I think it's just one of those fun things where it's just become associated. The words become associated with the breed doing this, but it's interesting because some people they they're not they don't get they get quite like we don't call them garrons, and I've worked deer ponies my whole life. I don't call them garrons, <laughs> but then other people are like, oh, they're called garrons. That's what they are. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I some I, I basically always say you know they're deer ponies in brackets sometimes called garrons, um, but I think. I'm going to do more research into it because it's so fascinating. And I'm like, where has this come from? But I think my theory at the moment of the, the, the sort of Gaelic speakers trading their ponies, but calling the, because I think they'd be selling on, you know, geldings because they'd want to keep their breeding ponies. So they'd sell geldings, which they'd call garrons. So I think they'd be selling their garrons. And you can imagine someone going to the market being like, oh, I've seen this thing. They call it a garron. <laughs> and that, that looks pretty good for, yeah. So look, I kind of alluded at the start, you've been going around and actually getting spending time with breeders of herds you know you're not just going to finding a pony somewhere you're actually getting in the yeah. thick of it and you somehow managed to get yourself in at Balmoral with these guys didn't you so that that must have been amazing um on so many levels um so where do we start with that um well maybe tell me about the ponies so they they're using highland ponies um on, on an estate could you just sort of give a bit of um you know give some context to it what, what what's it all about I know Sylvia Ormiston, who's a stud manager at Balmoral, and she obviously breeds Highlands and she shows them. And I know her through, you know, the showing world and the Highland pony world because, you know, I have Highlands myself. And on my travels, I sort of sent her a message saying, oh, could I come and take some pictures of some nice Highland ponies? And uh, she very kindly invited me to the stud um, when I was up there visiting. So I went along and I met the stallions she has there, um, which are beautiful. And I, I've expressed an interest in going out um, deer stalking with them. And I am someone that has, you know, experience in the sort of that sort of thing. And I've, I've been out deer. So I've not actually shot a deer myself, but I've been out with that sort of thing before. And I can growlick and I've, like, you know, butchered deer and things. Um, so she said, oh, well, we can probably try and arrange for you to go out with the ghillies tomorrow if you want it. And I was like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> so there I was in my walking gear, <laughs> last minute going out walking over the over the moors with them. Um, but that was yeah it was good it was nice to sort of spend time with them 
because um, I've always had Highlands. We've actually got the saddles that we that are used, but our ponies obviously never worked because we're down in the lakes. And we do have red deer here, but we don't use that sort of method to retrieve them. So it's no, it's really fascinating to go out with the ghillies, um, see the ponies being tacked up and used, and it, yeah, it was it was interesting to see them properly at work. And you you think when you look at them, you think, oh, that looks fairly easy. It's just carrying a deer, but it, they always say it's like five five years of training to get them to carry a stag because of the smell, because of the antlers. And um, obviously carrying a stag is a lot more dangerous than carrying a hind because of its antlers. So there's a lot of training goes into these ponies. Um, I learned a lot about, you know, their training when I was up there. Because they have to go through quite a process. They have to, I think, again, I've read somewhere or seen somewhere, or maybe it's you, I'm not sure, that they um, they feed them close to the deer skins to get them used to the smell. Yeah, there's a, a, few, a few ways of doing it, yeah. Um, but often when they're quite young, they'll have a, a deer skin, not a bloody one, quite a, like a, not a particularly fresh one either. And I think you can kind of, you know the ponies that are, that are quite interested in it and those that are really not wanting anything to do with it. And that's kind of, you know, your starting point. I actually, um, it was actually with a fell pony. We went to sort of see if she'd be any good at being a deer pony because she lived on a fell her whole life and she needed, she was going to have a job. Um, so I managed to get there's someone interested in buying her for training for deer stalking. So off I went out across the fell. Um, it was down at Galborough, and uh, took a managed to get hold of a red deer skin, and we took it out into the pen with them. And the pony came over, and she was so interested in it. And we did little. I had had the the lady on live stream. Uh, sorry, I had her on FaceTime, trying to just showing her how the pony was reacting. And the pony, she was so interested in it, and she was following it round. And she obviously was really. And, and the, the lady's like, "That's absolutely perfect." And they like to know, like, will they take food out of a skin? So you, you tend to put a few little nuts or something, or carrots, something on the skin. And if the pony's happy to eat out of it. You know, that's a really great starting point. Um, but I really recommend if anyone wants to learn more about how they actually train them, is the Highland Pony Society have a, a Zoom talk that was given by Sylvia Ormiston from Balmoral about how she breeds and trains the ponies, and you know the whole process, even down to like the tack they use and how they adapt certain things for you know what they're doing. Yeah, amazing. Obviously, the, the confirmation and action helps with how it's going to cover ground, but actually temperament is really important with those gillies. Oh yeah, temperament is it's so important with them. They have to be. The way they walk, they don't walk beside you as such. They have to have a long line and they walk right behind you because some of the tracks are so narrow. So if you've got a bargy pony, that's going to be no good at all because you just end up getting somebody hurt. Um, the ponies have to be really calm because if you have a hot one, it's not going to it's not going to react well. And if it suddenly sets off across a hill with the deer strapped onto it, it's not good. Yeah, so they need them to be, you know, calm, collected and clever. The ponies need to be able to think for themselves because if they're going through a bog and something bad happens where they get stuck, they need to be able to think of getting themselves out of it. They also, you also need to be able to trust them. And again, even when we're out walking with them, there'll be some bits where the ponies would stop and you know you could see them looking at this bit of bog and they're like, we're not going in that. <laughs> they didn't do anything horrible. They're just like, no, we're not going in. Uh, we'll go round. <laughs> so you kind of got to trust that they know what they're doing. Um, but then sometimes they have to trust you as well. So you need to have that really good, you know, the ponies that are they're not necessarily self-employed, but they're willing to work with people, but also to question what you're asking them to do. They need to have a mind of their own, but one that's, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to just do what they want. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all, that's all really interesting. I, I mean, the photos look amazing. I'm going to have to go and uh, explore that one as well. Uh, Dale's ponies. I'm guessing by looking at the pictures, you've been to see Charlie Parker by the colour of the ponies. I have, I've yeah, there. Charlie and Gina. Um, who have been absolutely wonderful. I love going to see them. It's it's just a day a day of adventure in itself. Um, I mean, they're so knowledgeable and just, I mean, their ponies are so wonderful too. Um, and they do have every every colour under the sun. And what's what's so nice about it is obviously with the rare colours, 
a lot of people breed for color but they breed for the color but they don't they don't compromise the quality of the pony you know or their workability or anything you know it's 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 nice to have the various colors but they do it in a way that you know it's it's more of a side effect of good breeding really but yeah again i see a few dales ponies out on the fells there's a few people keep them mixed in with the fell ponies and sometimes it would be quite hard to see which one's which but yeah i, I got yes yeah, i sort of got in touch with gina and um she very kindly invited me over to visit and I've had uh, two very lovely days out over there. Um, one was last year, one was this year. Just sort of seeing the ponies. And they, it's obviously not quite the same as keeping them on a fell, but they've got quite a nice big bit of land that they can run on. And they run with cattle. So that's quite, that's quite nice to see as well. Yeah, and they're just such lovely ponies and just such knowledgeable people as well. Like it's just, you just learn so much sitting there talking to them about them. What are you doing with Exmoors? You've just, I gather you're doing something with Exmoor stallions. Yeah, so there's a, a little group of um, conservation grazing ponies uh, not too far from me. Um, they graze for Cumbria Wildlife Trust, but they're actually Moorland Mousy Trust ponies. And I think a lot of people have heard of the Moorland Mousy Trust, which is basically a big Exmoor pony charity that, you know, takes on these cults and things from gatherings and just ponies that need homes. And they find them homes. Um, and a lot of these homes are conservation grazing. Um, and they do such a lot of, they do such a lot of good for advertising, you know, not just Exmoor ponies, but native ponies in general as conservation grazers. But yeah, I volunteer for them and my volunteer job is basically just checking at these little, this little herd of eight are okay. And they do get obviously checked by the Cumbria Wildlife Trust Ranger as well, but it's quite handy to know there's a pony person checking in on them as well. And especially during lockdown, I'd go and see them because um, again, they're not far from me at all. So I'd go and do my daily walk there and I just got to know them really well, the ponies. And they obviously weren't really seeing anybody at that point. And they are. I mean, there's some of them you can't get anywhere near. <laughs> they are very, very feral. Um, there's one of them who's quite tame. I call him Gerald. He features in a lot of my videos and pictures and things. He's great. But yeah, I I'd sort of built up. They kind of recognise me um, to the point where... Because where, where the nature reserve they live on, there's a farm that needs access through it. And sometimes the gate gets left open if he's moving a tractor or something. And they, they will sneak through and they'll be gone. <laughs> and they can't, they can't really go anywhere bad. They just get into this big field, which obviously is lush green grass. And I remember I went with my sister one day. I was like, oh, this should take me five minutes. I just need to make sure they're all okay. And my sister's not really into ponies at all. And anyway, I got there and I was like, I called for them. And they'll normally come to me if I call. And there's just not a pony anywhere. And I was like, oh no, it's just tumbleweed. And they were all out <laughs> and that was quite interesting to get them all back in but they're really great they're quite unusual because they're all boys and they're sort of yeah this little group of stallions really and, and there's a couple of geldings in there and they all live quite happily um it's a bit more different to because obviously in the lakes it's mostly mares the big mare herds um so this is quite different um and i think stallions are they're so sociable and they really don't like being separated from one another uh, they like to be together but there's very there's two very distinct groups in this nature reserve and they don't really mix and it's it's just there's one one stallion he does sort of roam between the two but when i see people talking about the mustangs and brumbies and how the stallions act there i can just see how it fits in with this little herd and there it's only eight of them but they're just a proper little family unit and honestly i don't know what to think if any of them got separated they'd be they'd be devastated <laughs> they're so sweet so how have you gone about getting getting access to be able to go and visit the breeders and the herds? Because that's you know that's been a key thing I think, hasn't it, for you on this project? Yeah, um, there's a few ways I've done it, but the main way is probably just actually using social media. And when I first started, especially with breeds I'm not particularly familiar with, I'd go to sort of breed specific you know groups on Facebook and say, look, this is this is who I am, this is what I do. I'm really interested in meeting some breeders of these ponies. Um, you know, can I come and see somebody? And, and people are really like they love to share about their ponies. Um, 
on like things like with the Eriski ponies on the island, it was a case of just emailing them, being pleasant, you know, emailing, um, and just because they ha- they actually have a lot of problems with people going and sort of it's difficult there because it's so condensed on the island. But they get, they get a lot of people will go out there and they'll take pictures and make loads of money off the pictures and do tours, and then the society never see a penny of it. And it's not that they have to, but you know they 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 get a bit frustrated because they they have they've had actually incidents with people being really quite rude to them. There was one set where they were telling me about a photographer up on the hill with a big umbrella by the ponies. And they did, they just went out of curiosity. It's like, oh, what, what are you doing here? And this photographer got really angry with them. So they're naturally quite cagey about things like that, which is completely understandable. But it was just a case of, you know, emailing them saying, that's that's not what I do. And I, I called them, I spoke to them. Obviously, the fact that I went there was a big thing. And obviously, with things like the Highland, I do know a lot of these breeds, any, the breeders anyway, just because I'm in that world myself. The fell ponies, it kind of, you know, there's always a domino effect once you've met one breeder, you kind of get the domino effect a bit as well. And again, especially with it, I'm quite local to the town end ponies. And again, I take a few pictures and I sent them to the town end Facebook page and I just got chatting through them like that, um, which is quite a nice way to do it. Um, and actually, Libby, Libby Robinson from the Globetrotter stud, she got in touch with me on Facebook and we kind of got chatting over that. And she's been re- really wonderful and she takes me out to see her ponies quite a lot. And then it's just kind of, you know, snowballed a bit, really. And I think with a lot of breeders like that, it hasn't. And with the Exmoors as well, because I have these little group of eight that I sort of see quite a lot. And I post a lot in the Exmoor pony group. Um, people kind of get to know my name, like Ruth on the Hoof. And they see that and they're like, oh, yeah. So when I do when I do put a random message out, like, can I come and see your ponies? They, they Some some of them do have an idea that it's not just some random person <laughs> who wants to come and see them. There is a reason behind it. Again, through deer stalking and stuff, you start to get people see the pictures and people who work on an estate might see them and be like, oh, yeah, we see that you've been out with an estate. Why don't you come out on our estate? And again, it just sort of <laughs> snowballs itself a bit, really, which is quite nice. And I think you said something about um, the fact that when you're spending time with the breeders amongst the herds, you're picking up stuff that you just can't pick up from a book or from a film or a photograph. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You just get the anecdotes that they have, the stories from people who, you know, like, like yourself, you've lived and breathed fell ponies your whole life. You know all that your family has and that sort of thing. If someone's written, a, if I'd just gone on Wikipedia or the Fell Pony Society website and written a page about that and made a book, it just has got no, it's got nothing in it, has it? Just little things like when, we're on, when I was on Eriski, just one of the crofters there who's owned ponies, he remembers his mum telling him off because his pony was rolling with his creels on the beach when he was, when he was down collecting seaweed one day. And... They don't do that anymore, it's not really done at all, but he still remembers that. And I just, I love that sort of thing when you talk, you talk about a naughty pony, because you, you expect all these ponies to be perfect, but of course they weren't, because you know, no pony, every pony is going to have its quirks, and that's part of their charm. <laughs> but yeah, you get, I mean, even talking to like, you know, Barbara Bell of Waverhead, because um, she she's, she's not really on the internet at all, um, but just going to see her, because um, again, I don't live far away from her at all. And you just kind of get more of a feel for it. And obviously with Libby, when you're out on the fell with Libby and her ponies, you get you, you can sort of see the relationship she has with them and the history. And then you sort of meet other breeders out on the hill. And oh, it's just great. But it's, it's something you can't really put into words or at least if you've not experienced it yourself. So we're winding up now. It's been fascinating, really fascinating. But we're winding up now to the last few minutes. So I've got... Normally I have three quick questions actually, but I've slipped an extra one here, especially Ruth. Ooh. So we've got four quick questions. So the first question is, favourite breed of native pony? That's a very difficult question and I get asked it a lot. <laughs> um, I don't really have an answer because I love so many for so many different reasons. Um, 
I can't really give you an answer, but I do have a very soft spot for Highland, Eriski, Exmoor and Welsh my A's because my old pony Merlin was a Welsh A. <laughs> <laughs> I can't give you a straight answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, okay, cool. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. I knew it'd be tricky, but I thought I'd give it a go anyway. Okay, so um, next question, ride or drive? Ride. Ride, okay, cool. Favourite, I think this has got to be about fell ponies now, actually. I'm going to narrow it down. So, okay. favourite fell pony or line of fell ponies in the history of the breed? Oh, oh no, that's tricky. I think my favourite fell pony, I'll give you that answer, is Town End Fantasy. She's really sweet. More because I know her in person and she's just lovely. And whenever I sometimes go home that way and I just like to see her. <laughs> That's a really perfect answer. So there we go. I'll take that. Um, and uh, last question: Fell ponies, black, brown, bay, or grey? Um, I'll say black because I think that's it's not not that it is a distinctive feature of them, but I think it's become so synonymous with them that I think I do like to see the black ones because you don't get it in that many other breeds, really. Oh yeah, I never thought of it like that actually. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there we go. Cool. Ruth, um, it's been fascinating. Really, really fascinating. So. Um, Again, as usual, I've learned so much today. Really nice to speak. Um, I'm going to watch with interest as, as I follow your progress working your way around the British Isles and Ireland. And Ireland. Taking, you're going to do the Connemara as well. And the Kerry, yeah, yeah, the Kerry yeah, Bog yeah. Pony. Oh, of course. Not forgetting the Kerry Bog Pony. <laughs> yeah, fa- that, that, I'm really interested to know about the Kerry Bog Pony. Yeah. Especially, especially, I know nothing except that there is one. So there yeah. you go. It's all I've, new I've to me. had some interesting conversations with some Irish people about them, which has been really nice, and I'm excited to go and meet them. Fascinating. Well, I really look forward to the book, and um, uh, yeah, I hope you um, get out of isolation pretty quick. And, <laughs> Thank you. Um, win- winter well, and um, <laughs> you too. see you in the spring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Listening back to that conversation again, what struck me was Ruth's enthusiasm, which can be contagious. What I loved about Ruth's story is that she just got out there and made things happen. Now more than ever, we need young people, fresh with new ideas and optimism, to represent the Felpony breed. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to the show. If you liked it, please do me a favour and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you really liked it, do me an even bigger favour and leave a review. It will really help us get the word out. A huge thanks to my patrons who make all this possible. Charlie, Emma, Kate, Chris, Hannah, Alistair, Chris, Caroline, Kate, Jenny, Joe, Easy Horse, Willow, Rath, Mandy, Sue, Katie, Rue, Kalina, Matthew, Sue, Jane, Jess, Heather, Kim, Jennifer, Karen, Ruth, Timothy, Jennifer, Sarah, Helen, Misao, Samantha and Dobby. Thank you so much. I am eternally grateful for your support. So why not come and join the Patreon herd and help us keep this podcast alive? Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and you'll be able to find more episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. I'm Tom Lloyd and you're listening to the Fell Pony Podcast. See you next time.